Father, thanks so much for this day. Thanks that we can gather on the Lord's Day and sanctify a day in the week to remember you and remember your promises and to encourage one another and to worship you through teaching and learning and singing and preaching um, and exhortation. I pray, Lord, that you would bless the message this morning and bless the hearers. Bless my speech, Father, that I would speak your words from your word. I pray your hand would be on this morning and I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, great, my slides are up. All right, so I made handouts and Tim stapled them together for me like a champ. So I'll start handing It's all of the notes ever up until now. Oh, perfect. Everybody gets one of these and one of them. And you also have a more developed timeline that Curtis is going to hand you. All right. So getting going. So last time we looked at the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. We didn't look at the Twelve too in depth. We kind of had to rush through them. But we talked about their themes. And now this morning we're looking at the writings. my thing back on. Good to go? Okay. This morning we're looking at the writings. So there they're divided into pre-exilic writings. So things written before the exile and post-exilic writings. So things written after the exile. We're not going to do them in that order. We're also not going to do them in the order that uh, the Bible has them in. And I'll explain that after. But to recap last time. uh, So last time we looked again at the latter prophets. So that's major prophets. And then the 12 minor prophets. And we just saw that these took place overlapped of the history of first and second kings and actually the minor prophets, most of the Old Testament, um, starting in starting after judges. But so we saw that God spoke to his people before the exile through the prophets, warning them to repent or else they'd go into exile. And they didn't. So they went into exile. But through and even after the exile, God had major and minor prophets speaking to Israel warning them of this day of the Lord that's both a day of justice and judgment on the wicked and on the religious hypocrites and on political injustice and all sorts of things, but it's also a day of salvation and renewal and people uh, coming to love the law again and people from all nations coming to uh, the Mount of Zion, which is just poetic language for coming to God's people to learn God's ways. So this is the order we're going to tackle the writings in today. The reason I'm doing them in this order is because, uh, well, here, I'll go forward a couple slides and show you. On this timeline, the order we're doing the writings in today roughly at least happen in order how they pop up on the timeline. And I was afraid that if I covered them how they were in the Bible, we'd be going back and forth between, and this one takes place here, and this one takes place here. And some of the writings aren't just poetry. Some of them are actually history. So that would get really confusing. So that's why we're tackling them a little out of order today. So the writings are a mixed bag. Includes poetry, uh, wisdom. Is there anything I can do about the feedback there? I'll just keep going while they figure that out. 
uh, includes poetry, wisdom, prophecy, history, um, reflection on history, and sub-narrative side stories within history. So when I say reflection on history, for example, First and Second Chronicles, they actually just retell history that's already been told mostly in First and Second Kings. They just tell it from a different perspective. Uh, the utility of the writings is that this is a general statement. There's obviously like countless exceptions to this, but in general, if the historical narrative of the Bible tells us what God is doing uh, through his people, uh, the writings kind of slow down, stop there, and unpack that and show us who God is. Now, you obviously can learn things about who God is through, through the his- history, but the writings kind of really explicitly give us some insight throughout the timeline of Scripture, historically. So yeah, you can see that there's quite a few more things on the timeline than there was last time. Um, So we're just going to get going now. So the book of Job. The book of Job I have, if you kind of see it right under Psalms there, I have an arrow going back um, because nobody really knows who wrote the first Psalm. Uh, It at least goes back as far as Moses. So I left it ambiguous, ambiguous. And that's the same with Job. People think Job might have been written later. People think it might have been written before Abraham. Um, most people agree that it historically happened before Abraham, but we're just not certain when it was written. But that's where Job is on our timeline. And so the who, what, where, when, and why of Job. So who? The Lord, the Satan. In the Old Testament, when you see Satan, which isn't that much, he's called the Satan in Hebrew, and that means the accuser. And that's what he's called in the New Testament, too. That's what Satan means. Uh, And Job's friend and family. Uh, So what? The Lord allows Satan to test Job's faithfulness uh, to God through taking away his blessings. Uh, Basically, Satan says, you know, Job only loves you, Lord, because you've blessed him so much. Look at all the kids he has. Look at all the wealth he has. Look at all the land he has. If you touch that... He won't love you anymore. He won't honor you. He won't worship you. He'll grow bitter towards you. Uh, This happens in the land of Uz. This is southeast of the Jordan River. Uh, When? Like I said, unknown. Uh, And why? The book of Job shows us that the Lord has the full right to give and take away because it's his creation. He owns us in all of our things. And to show us that earthly blessings are not always in accordance with obedience. So throughout the book of Job, we see Job's friends thinking, you must have sinned because God's taking away your stuff. And God actually rebukes his friends for that. The, the book starts with naming Job as an upright and righteous man, blameless in his generation. And it shows us that God's ways are much higher than our ways in his wisdom. And we're going to go pretty quick today because we have 13 books to cover. So, so this main structure of Job is Job's established as a right and, uh, righteous man and Satan is permitted by God. Uh, Satan has to ask permission from God to test Job showing us that he's on a tight leash. Um, And then from 3 to 42, it's just repetitive patterns and poems of Job's friends speculating what he must have done to deserve this, Uh, Job questioning God, the Lord rebuking them and showing how much higher his ways are than Job's ways. And then at the very end, the Lord rebukes Job's friends for their misunderstanding of justice and blessing. Um, And he actually restores all of Job's health and family and possessions. And that's not a granted pattern. It doesn't always happen that way. So next, we are on to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth happens during Judges there. So if you see on the timeline the book of Judges, the book of Ruth just starts off in, with, in the days of the Judges. Um, 
not exactly sure when in the book of Judges, but somewhere during the same time as the book of Judges, Ruth happens. So this is like a sub-story of the main historical narrative of Scripture. So who? Naomi, an Israelite. Uh, Ruth, a Moabite, and Boaz. What? Uh, the story of an Israelite family being redeemed to carry out the line of the Messiah through a Moabite. Where? In Israel. When? In the days of the judges. Uh, why? To show God's resolve to bring about his promised Messiah and to show that he uses the least of all, a Moabite, which if you've read the Old Testament up until now should make you go, a Moabite, really bad people that they should have killed and driven out of the land. But the Lord uses a Moabite to, re- to redeem the line, the Davidic line that ends up giving rise to David, the king. So the main structure of Ruth is, if my clicker wants to participate, there we go. So Naomi and Israelite, there's a famine in the land. This is before the exile during Judges, remember? There's a famine in the land, so she moves to Moab to get away from the famine. And she ends up having Moabite son-in-laws and daughter-in-laws, and she ends up having a Moabite family, lots of kids who are Moabites. And eventually they want to return to Israel because it's also, there's also a famine in Moab where they are. And so her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who is a pagan Moabite, comes back to the promised land with her. And then chapters 2 and 3, Ruth meets Boaz, Naomi's family redeemer, uh, and, asks her, and asks him to marry or redeem her line. Uh, so that was just a practice in ancient Israel. Uh, pretty much every Israeli family had what was called a redeemer, meaning if things look really bad and our line can't continue, you'll marry somebody and you'll keep our line going. And so chapter 4, the Lord does this for them, and Boaz marries Ruth, and it ends with a genealogy showing us that this gives rise to King David. So now we're going to look at the Psalms. We're going to cover the Psalms really quick and then come back to them at the end because I'd like to spend some time in a specific Psalm. Um, but yeah, you can see here, the Psalms go, <laughs> it's kind of ambiguous, but they were mostly written during the time of David and Solomon. Uh, the first one was Moses, and they go for a while after that. So who? The Psalms have many authors, uh, but the contents focus around Yahweh and his covenant people, Israel. Uh, what? The Psalms are a collection of poetry of all kinds, celebrating God, mourning sin and failure, and looking forward to a better leader of God's people, using a lot of Jewish imagery. Uh, where the Psalms were written in Israel... When, uncertain, as many psalms are anonymous, I think about a third of the psalms don't have a claimed author, um, likely from the time of Moses to some time after exile. And why? To show God's people how we relate to him in different occasions, to show God's attributes in better detail, and to direct us to a better king to come. So an important note while reading psalms is that while almost every psalm is pointing to Christ, and you could argue every single psalm is pointing to Christ, they always have an immediate context in ancient Israel. And if you kind of skip over that because you pick up a few Jesus-sounding things in there and just run with that, you'll probably always miss the fullness of the real way Christ is fulfilling that. So it's really important to remember that all of the Psalms have immediate fulfillment to the Jewish people. And that really just enriches how Christ fulfills it when you understand that. Proverbs. Mostly written by King Solomon, and the Proverbs are a collection of wisdom for God's people to think on. It's literally line after line of scattershot wisdom. You could open your book of Proverbs and point anywhere, 
and you'd just be landing on a Y saying, and you'd point to the one under it, and it probably has nothing to do with the one above it. <laughs> Written in Israel uh, during the reign of Solomon. Um, Solomon probably wrote most of the Proverbs, but it's applicable at all times to God's people. Uh, and why? It says wisdom calls out. The book of Proverbs paints wisdom as a woman who's calling out on the street corners, you know, come and get wisdom, come and have wisdom. Why should you stay simple? Uh, and so we get this wisdom by listening to and obeying God's word. A common phrase repeated throughout the Proverbs is get wisdom, get wisdom. I think there's one verse that tells you to get wisdom by getting wisdom. <laughs> Just get it. So that's the Proverbs. An important note in Proverbs is so well, the Proverbs give us a general outline of how to live in God's world well and how to thrive in God's world. It's just a general outline of input-output. Um, the world's corrupted by sin, so all of the Proverbs are not... This isn't, the Proverbs aren't promises, they're wisdom, right? So like the slide says, you could raise your child up in the way that he or she should go, and they could still fall away from the Lord. Um, but generally, it's wise to train them up in the way they should go, for example, because most times they will end up following the Lord still. Um, yeah, so, and a lesson we can learn from Proverbs is that wisdom doesn't apply itself. So you don't just read the book of Proverbs and you're wise. Because King Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs and he was very unwise. He had several wives. Actually, in Deuteronomy 17, there's a list of rules for a king not to break, and Solomon breaks all of them. So wisdom doesn't apply itself. You have to do the hard work to apply the wisdom. Ecclesiastes. So this is, these are all written during the reign of King Solomon. So this was probably also mostly written by Solomon. Uh, and it can be seen as a counterbalance to Proverbs. So Proverbs is usually fairly optimistic. If you do this, then this good thing will come. Uh, Ecclesiastes is kind of fairly depressing. It just points out the meaninglessness and disappearing nature of most of the things people live for, uh, written in Israel during the time of Solomon, but again, it's applicable everywhere at all times to God's people. So at any time, no matter where you are, if you need a good cry, you can read Ecclesiastes. Um, why? To take away our hunger for pointless things and need for control in this life. So some important things to think about when reading Ecclesiastes is most modern translations, you'll see meaningless, meaningless repeating over and over again. That means vapor, vapor. Everything's fleeting. Everything's disappearing. Um, it's pointless. It's, you can do everything right and it'll disappear tomorrow. You will die. Uh, there's a proverb that says, I've seen the righteous die young and I've seen the wicked grow old and prosper. So it's kind of a counterbalance, like I said to Proverbs, not everything always goes your way. You have no control over this life and the things of living for the world, if you want to have control over them and get your satisfaction from that, that's a vapor. But it's not saying that everything is ultimately meaningless. It's not nihilistic. It doesn't think that there is no end game or goal for God's people, right? So it kind of ends by saying, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humans. So it's trying to get us to feel, I have no control over anything. So all I really have to worry about is fearing God and keeping his commandments. And that's the only thing that's not meaningless. And then in the context of fearing God and keeping his commandments, then everything finds meaning. But on its own, it's meaningless. Song of Songs. 
So it's called the Song of Solomon. It might mean Solomon wrote it. It might mean somebody wrote it about Solomon. Lots of it's from a female perspective. So either way, it's a poem about uh, sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. They're longing for each other and calling back and forth to one another and pursuing each other, written in Israel. Uh, This was written during the reign of King Solomon or shortly after, but probably during the reign of King Solomon. And why was Song of Songs written? There's three views on this. Uh, The three views are to represent the desire between Yahweh and his people to be reunited like the Garden of Eden, and that finds its fulfillment in Christ and the church in the New Testament, right? Um, God's mediator and his people. And it's just, I mean, we do read in Ephesians 5 that a husband and wife represent Christ and the church, so likewise sexual intimacy would represent the intimacy between Christ and his people. So that's one view. The second view is to represent a true vision of love uh, with Garden of Eden imagery. There's lots of that throughout uh, the Song of Songs. And so it's kind of giving us a picture of love before the fall, without corruption, without selfishness. And it's pointing us to a better day when, when that will be just the reality on the whole earth. And the third view is exactly what it seems like, just a poem to educate God's people on a healthy view of sexual intimacy. And I don't see why it couldn't be all three at the same time. I hold that it's all three. Um, you don't have to, but I have no theme verses from Song of Songs. You can go and read it yourself. All right, so now we're going to look at Chronicles next. So you see here, Chronicles happens. It actually, so it mostly covers First and Second Samuel and King's content, but really, you could stretch that timeline all the way back to the start of the Pentateuch in Genesis um, because the book of Chronicles starts with the genealogy, which starts with Adam. But that's the focal point of it. It's actually just retelling the history of Israel's development of kings, and it takes us right up to the end of the exile. Uh, it retells it in this kind of way. It doesn't revise history totally or lie about anything. It just retells history with rose-colored glasses. So we'll, we'll look at that. So... So who, all of the main characters of scripture, it follows, um, begins with the genealogy of Adam, like I said. Uh, what? Chronicles is like a recap of the Old Testament told with rose-colored glasses. It doesn't lie or revise history, but it selectively tells the story of God's people in a way that's meant to give the generations after the exile hope and motivation to obey God. So the purpose of Chronicles, it was written after the exile, And it goes back and retells Israel's history. And all of, for example, it tells a lot of stories about King David and pretty much all of the regrettable things King David did and all of his sin, um, all of his errors. It kind of omits them and it kind of glorifies the things he did right. And this isn't to lie about King David or rewrite history. The author of the Chronicles knows the people can just go read the other history books. It's just to give the people... An example in history to this guy obeyed God. Like, look at how David obeyed God here. We can obey him now that we're back from the exile. We can do it too. So that's kind of the purpose of First uh, and Second Chronicles. So now we're moving on to Lamentations. And if you see there right above the exile, Lamentations is written... After the exile, but it's about the exile. So all of the mourning and lamentations takes place during the exile while Israel is taken captive by Babylon and under foreign oppression and not in their homeland. So the who, Israel and Babylon, what is it? 
So lamentations, it's a lament or like a sorrowful, a sorrowful reflection uh, for Israel's state in exile. It focuses on the oppression and pain that they have while they're in exile. And this is in contrast to them remembering the blessing that they experienced while they were still in the promised land, uh, where this takes place in Babylon and was written during, well, it takes place during the exile, was written after. And why? This is to show the consequences of disobeying the covenant. So remember, that's the point of the prophets. You disobeyed the covenant. We're calling you out on that. This is the fruition of that. Uh, Lamentations reflects on that. Here's what happened. We disobeyed God. And so God's not only faithful to bless and fulfill his good promises that we want to enjoy, but he's also just as faithful to judge. If he's promised, like he promised to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, if you fail at one point in keeping my whole law, Deuteronomy 28 is full of curses and lamentation is, is showing God's not only faithful to carry out the blessing, he's faithful to carry out the consequences of sin if we sin against him. Daniel. Daniel's also an exilic book, so it happens during the exile. So who? Daniel, an Israelite under Babylonian rule, uh, and he's an interpreter of dreams. Uh, what? It follows Daniel as he stays faithful to God under oppression from the Babylonians. So Daniel is this Jew who's in exile. Um, and it's really hard for him to stay faithful. They're trying to make him break all of the kosher laws for what he can eat. They're trying to make him worship crazy statues that are definitely not the Lord. Uh, and it focuses on a lot of visions uh, which display a pattern of God's people being oppressed by powers that be, but ultimately liberated and saved by a figure called the Son of Man, uh, who all nations will worship uh, one day as a king. The thing with the book of Daniel is I really wanted to get into the book of Daniel at least a bit. But the thing is, if you start getting into the book of Daniel, for anything to make sense, you have to really get into the book of Daniel. So for time's sake, we're not going to get into the book of Daniel as much as I'd like this morning. But there is a lot of visions in there that a lot of Christians disagree about. But this is the main theme of it that all Christians can agree on. It's just a pattern of God's people being oppressed. But this, this son of man who sits at the right, ho- uh, the right hand of, of the throne of the power on high of God, uh, he'll be worshipped and served by all nations and one day that will be the king of Israel and all nations will worship Israel or will worship the Lord of Israel and come to Israel for wisdom instead of the other way around. So this would be very hopeful for Daniel to be having these visions and dreams during exile when it's reversed. Uh, and why, like I said, to give God's people hope when they're discouraged or oppressed by earthly powers that one day the Messiah will rule and reign forever and all nations will obey him. Now we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah. So uh, you can see it there over the return from exile. So this happens as the Jews are starting to be released from exile. The Lord has mercy and the king that they're under at the time says, you know what? The Lord put it on my heart. You can all go home. So they start doing that. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are about. So God's people, Israel, uh, and then three main characters, three main Israelites uh, that this focuses on who God's working through here. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So what? As Israel is released from exile by the grace of God, they return to rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel does that. Um, He rebuilds the temple. And actually the people of God are quite disappointed because the second temple that they rebuild is nothing like um, King Solomon's temple. And... Once the temple is built, all of the Jewish people are standing around waiting for 
some miraculous sign that God's presence is filling the temple because that happened with the tabernacle in the wilderness. That happened with Solomon's temple, smoke, pillars of flames, all that kind of thing. And that doesn't even happen with this temple. So the people who were born before the exile and remember the former glory days when the temple was beautiful and amazing and God's presence was clearly there, um, they're really upset. They're really not happy. They're really not grateful that they're brought back from exile. They're basically asking, why would God even bring us out of exile for something as lame as this? Um, So the temple's rebuilt. And then uh, Ezra tries to establish God's law among the people again. Um, And Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem to kind of keep it ethnically pure. And that's not a racist thing. That's just the Israelites were not to marry pagans. Actually, at one point, uh, the prophet Ezra says, any pagans that you've married during the exile and brought here and all of the kids you've had with these women and men, you need to send them back to their lands. We're not going to have... We're not going to have any foreigners here. We're not going to let them be a stumbling block to us anymore. We just got back from exile. We're not doing this. And so that's why Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. It's to symbolize separating Israel once again from the surrounding nations to be God's people, dedicated to God alone, not influenced by the world. Um, And none of this fixes Israel's heart. Like I said, they're pretty disappointed when they get back. It's not the way they wanted it to be. um, And they're very ungrateful. And so this is to show God's faithfulness in preserving Abraham's people through the exile because God knew how ungrateful they'd be after the exile. But still, he preserved them through the exile to keep his promise to Abraham that, Abraham, one day your family's going to bless all nations, and I have to do that through Israel. Um, it also shows that God's people need new hearts. So much of this Old Testament narrative is showing us no matter what God does for these people, it's not fixing their hearts. They're still hardened towards him. They're still ungrateful. They're still sinful. We need, a, we need something new to happen. We need something better where God fixes the hearts of the people instead of giving them all sorts of outside of them blessings. So Esther, uh, I'll go back to our timeline quick here. So Esther happens about 100 years after the return of Israel from exile. Excuse me. Um, So who? Esther, a Jew, Mordecai, her uh, relative, and, excuse me, and the king of Persia. So the book of Esther takes place, like I said, 100 years after the exile, but actually all of the Jews haven't returned back to the promised land yet. There's still quite a few scattered out. And by this time, the Jews were under Babylonian rule before. The Babylonians came and plundered them and took them into exile Sometime during the exile, Persia, the Persian Empire, uh, overruled Babylon and consumed Babylon. And so by the end of the exile, um, the Jews are actually under Persian oppression. So this is happening under Persian rule in Persian territory. And Ezra is just one of those Jews who hasn't returned back to the promised land yet. It's a progressive thing that's happening. Some have chosen not to go back to the promised land. Uh, Some areas have a ruler who's not letting them go back to the promised land yet, but it starts 100 years after this progression. So it's the only book in scripture that doesn't mention God by name. And this is really deliberate. If you read the book of Esther, it's very obvious that the author's doing this on purpose because he's showing us just God's hand in history. You can't read the book of Esther and go, man, that was a coincidence. It's so obvious how God is working providentially through it. So it follows Esther. She's secretly a Jew under this Persian rule while she's still in exile. 
And through God's providential hand working in history, mysteriously, even without mentioning his name, she accidentally ends up as the queen of Persia. She ends up marrying the king of Persia, which works out great because what was going to happen was the king of Persia was just going to send a decree out that all of the Jews be killed. He was just an angry drunk and he wanted to kill all of the Jews. Well, he ends up accidentally marrying a Jew and through Esther, through this providence that the Lord gave for the king to marry a Jew, Esther is able to convince him not to destroy all of the Jews into land and to kind of modify uh, the decree he gave so that God's people could be preserved. And so why this shows us God's hand providentially working in ordinary circumstances. It doesn't have to mention God once for you to say, hey, something's happening here. The Lord's doing something. And it shows God's covenant faithfulness to preserve his people by acting in history. Okay, so I said I wanted to come back to a psalm in our last 15 minutes. And this is, we're right on time, that's perfect. So, we'll break off into a few groups here. Um, How about Joan Up? And then, do you, you can't be in a group, Chris? Okay, that's fine. No problem. Um, And then we'll go, you three guys. (laughs) And then we'll go, you guys. And so get into groups and read. Um, and Jason, do you want to join their group? Thank you. Uh, get into groups and read Psalm 72, 72, and answer the following questions. So you can read them while you're reading it, but I'll read them out for, it, uh, for you. So ask yourself while you're reading this, how does this psalm point to someone who will fulfill the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through his seed? How does this psalm point to a fulfillment of the promise God made to David that his son would rule over all of God's people forever? And then the psalm clearly connects these two promises. Uh, I hope you'll realize as you're reading it. How does the psalm show these promises helping one another to be fulfilled? So how does the psalm connect the promise to Abraham and the promise to David? How is the promise to David in this psalm helping the promise to Abraham find its full enforcement? And I'll take about eight or ten minutes for that, depending on what we need. All right. We're going to start to wrap up here, guys, and share our answers and conclude here. I was hearing some really great stuff, really encouraging. So we'll go like this. Um... We'll have each group answer one question. So how did you guys find this psalm points to just any verses that stuck out, uh, points to someone who will fulfill the promise to Abraham that all nations are going to be blessed through his seed? Yep, yeah, we'll go this group one question, that group one question, that group one question. <laughs> Right, exactly, yeah. Right. And who's the him, right? This king that's going to come, right? So it's not just through Israel as a nation anymore. It's through this one tentacle figure who rules over and represents Israel. Yeah, that's great. I'd unpack this with a lot more time, but we're running out of time. But that's perfect, guys. Thank you. Uh, did, what did you guys find for uh, 
how this prom, how this psalm shows God fulfilling his promise to David to have a king to rule over his people perfectly one day. Any verses that stuck out or anything you found or Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's the same king. He's going to bless all nations through this king. So this psalm is kind of addressing both promises. And then what did you guys find for... I heard some really good stuff from all the groups, but I was... I'm going to... You guys are answering this question. How are these promises connected? How does the first one get fulfilled by the second one, the promise to David? Mm-hmm. Right. I love how you put that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, yeah. So there's this promise to Abraham. All nations are going to be blessed through your family. And then there's this promise to David. From you, the king of the family of Abraham, there's going to come a perfect king who rules over God's people forever with perfect justice. And then we see that that fulfills the promise to Abraham to bless all nations because this king is going to bless all nations because he's going to rule with God's right hand in all nations. He's going to establish God's justice and God's ways. And that will automatically be a blessing to all nations. So just to wrap up here, this was really good stuff, guys. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, covenant connections here. I just want the last thing that we realize now that we're finished up the Old Testament. The covenants are not separate from each other. The promises aren't separate things from each other, separate little spots on God's storyline. So here's kind of how they stack on top of one another, expecting the new covenant. And then we'll be really quick here, and then we'll be done. So the creation covenant... If you guys obey perfectly, you can stay in perfect presence with me in this garden, right? And then the Noahic covenant renews that, right? And tries to start it again through Noah, restarts humanity, and then establishes a consistent pattern in creation so the rest of the promises can happen. Because if God destroys the earth again, we can't have any more promises. Then the Abrahamic covenant establishes a family for God to start restoring this, this Eden state to again, right? The Mosaic covenant gets this family out of, ex- uh, out of oppression, and reveals God's standards to this family that God has given Abraham. And then the Davidic covenant promises a king to take these standards and execute them everywhere, the whole earth. So the Abrahamic promise is fulfilled in the Mosaic promise, right? In the Israel, not promise, the Israeli covenant. Here's your people, Abraham. I've brought them out of Egypt. Here they are. And then those standards that they learned, the, the king from David's line is going to enforce them everywhere. And so the promise to Abraham will be fulfilled because all nations will be blessed in that way through that king. And this all points forward through the prophets throughout the whole Old Testament to a promised new covenant. So it's not just that this king will rule over the whole world and the law will be outside of them and they'll just have to follow this king because he's from God. They'll want to. The Lord will put his law in the hearts of his people. And the whole Old Testament is now just looking forward towards that. So, yeah, to just finish, the covenants are helping each other. They're all connected All of the promises are building on one another for us to expect something really great. And we'll see that next time in the Gospels. Thanks, guys.